All right, one of the things, I, I, the direction I would like to go today is um, kind of related to the Ascension service last night, this idea of um, being participants in Christ. Um, and on page 200, uh, Peterson says, we become what we receive. And one of the things is, as we participate in the Eucharist or participate in the Supper, uh, we are participating in Christ. And I don't know if anybody knows this painting, but this is the painting, uh, The Supper at Emmaus by Caravaggio, uh, or a Renaissance painter, mid to late Renaissance, I guess. Um, and one of the interesting things about art, and this was actually related to the icon uh, seminar last week, is icons are supposed to draw you in and you're, you're supposed to, interact with the icon. You're supposed to interact with the image. You're, you're supposed to participate with it. And one of the interesting things about this is, is not only is your eye drawn to the center towards Jesus, who um, has the hand of blessing and is actually blessed. It looks like he's blessing the chicken or turkey or whatever that is, but in fact there's a loaf of bread right behind it right here, and then this is a glass of wine, and his, his, his hand is actually directly over this. And Caravaggio does a, a fantastic job of actually demonstrating that when you participate in the Eucharist, you are participating in, in a, uh, the redemption of creation, the redemption of the entire world, which Eugene Peterson in this section really brings out. Now, like I said, the eye is drawn into towards Jesus. Uh, I don't know if anybody knew this, but the reason why Jesus doesn't have a beard is because that's supposed to tell the story of how the, the, the disciples at Emmaus didn't know Jesus. So they just, and a lot of other paintings too, post-resurrection, or resurrection Jesus, not post-resurrection Jesus, is often imaged without a beard. So if you see that, that's just FYI. It's just, I don't know. Uh, because it's after the it's the resurrection Jesus, before the crucifixion. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. The supper. You mean you can't see these little letters here, Carol? <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. Anyways. Um, yeah. So, but the thing is, so so your eyes drawn towards Jesus, and one of the things though is as far as participating in the supper is this little food basket. Can anybody make out what's going on with that food basket? Well, no, no, no. Where is it on the table? Well, yeah, it's right on the edge. It almost looks like it's going to fall off unless you, as the viewer, reaches out and stops it. So Caravaggio actually is, is drawing you into the picture by you saying, ooh, I really want to push that thing back. I want to put it back onto the table. So not only is your eye drawn to Jesus, but you actually are drawn into the supper by this fruit basket. So, that's kind of this interesting thing, is as you participate in the supper, you're participating in Jesus. You're participating in this redemption process. You have a seat at the table of redemption. And Peterson, throughout this section, uh, really brings that out as far as uh, the word sacrifice. And we'll talk about that in a second. But, 
as you're drawn into this picture, you're being taken up into the work of God, and you become participants in the salvation of the world. What's, what's interesting about Lutheranism is you don't do anything for God. You can't add to salvation. God has done it all. That's Hebrews 10. That's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. But what's fun about Lutheranism is you participate. So you, 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 don't, you don't do things for God, but you do things with God. Jesus is there with you out in the world enacting his salvation. So you're being taken up into the work of God. And which means you're embodying the life of Jesus. And um, page 203 says, We cultivate our participation in the play of Christ in history by following him to the cross and receiving his life as he gives it to us. So there's a fundamental question here. What kind of gift is it? And this is, this is actually, as we talk about some of these things I brought up, this will be the one question we we'll want to answer today. What kind of gift is Jesus giving us? We hear about giving his life and salvation, giving forgiveness. Um, but sometimes that still remains in an abstract world. So hopefully by, we get done at 1030, right? 1025 or something, 1020. We're going to answer that question. Well, we'll begin to answer it. It's not an easy question to answer. All right, on page 203, Peterson brings up sacrifice. And he spends the majority of his time speaking about Christ's sacrifice, which is obviously correct, and demonstrating how when God... God does salvation by sacrifice. Um, And as we understand the word sacrifice, we need to understand it in its wholeness. I think sometimes back in our minds or in our hearts, we often think it, it was maybe easy for God to save the world. So we we maybe water down what the sacrifice was and the cost of it. Now, that might be true, that might not be true, but I think it really, this idea does begin at the temptation of Jesus in the desert, where, of course, Jesus is going to defeat the devil. I mean, he's God. What's, you know, Sure, he didn't eat for 40 days, but man, he's the bread of life, right? He's got life in him. What we sometimes forget, though, is Jesus, according to Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself. So when he takes on the devil, he takes on the devil as, as a man. Not very similar to how you take on the devil and you take on evil. And when I mean take on, I mean fight, you know. So so when we understand sacrifice, 
we understand that it comes at a very high price. It's not easy. So, anyways, so for us, that's what Eugene Peterson talks about. Christ sacrifices for you, Martha, in your place, for every one of us. So we receive that sacrifice. But then when Peterson brings up his, you also give sacrifice. Which sometimes in our mind sounds like works righteousness, maybe just a, a, a tad. But um, here on the right is The Mission. Has anybody ever seen that movie? I just saw it the other day, Sunday. It's a very good movie. Um, and unfortunately, here at St. John, we have YouTube blocked. Uh, so I can't, I would love to bring up the YouTube trailer. Needless to say, I can go to Netflix, though. But unfortunately, it's not a full screen uh, preview. So it's a little bitty one. So we're going to have to take a look at that. Okay, Cannes Film Festival, 1986, for those of us who have a tough time reading that far, which I do on my own screen. Um, oop, I should turn on the speakers here. All right, I just want us to take a look at this preview, and we'll just kind of talk it out afterwards. Okay. Is that loud enough? Louder? would bring among them a man whose life was to become inextricably intertwined with their own. All right. I don't know if you were able to make out some of those images. Uh, but in your own words, I mean, what, what 
could you get the gist of the movie from that preview? What would be the gist of the movie? There's a war going on. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, the movie the movie preview does kind of yeah, set up I kind of think it's seen there more when like the fight and the construction. Yeah, right. Because then the one that does he says if there's force You've destroyed you've destroyed things. Yeah. Yeah, the movie definitely uh sets up these two kind of parallels. There's there is there's these two stories that are very similar but very different going on at the same time. Uh, Spain and Portugal are, are colonizing South America. And there is a tribe. This is uh, during the time of colonization, which would be the... Uh, I think this one does take place in the 1700s, but this colonization started in the 1500s. Anyways, this is kind of loosely based on a true story. So, anyways, it's not like, so this is kind of interesting to think about. Spain and Portugal are colonizing this land conquest. How do they do this? How do they come into this place and transform it? How do they do that? And for what? What are they transforming? What purpose? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, they're they're trying to take the land. Uh, man, you know that you saw the images of fire, bow and arrows, guns, troops, coming in and taking over a place. There is a character in the movie who is kind of the representative of that side of purpose. And what's what's quite funny is, I mean, he he sees the natives as animals or less than human. And he's completely motivated by greed. Uh, He wants to be a manipulator. So he, basically it's for him to take. This land is for him and his people to take. He wants to take it over. So in a sense, he gives up nothing, but takes everything. And the irony in the movie, I, I don't know if this was on purpose too, but he, he's actually more animal-like than anybody in the entire movie. Uh, yeah, just even his demeanor and his, even kind of his, the way he looks, scowls, and kind of like a bear, kind of like my daughter Audrey. Arr. Well, that's, I mean, that is, that is, that's one side of the story. And then the other side of the story is the missionary the missionary work. <laughs> Speaking of my daughter. <laughs> the other side of the story is the missionary work, which some people do perceive as part of the conquest. And history, to a certain extent, does tell us that. 
Now this movie, though, is, is working on a different paradigm. The mission work, what are the images of the mission work in that movie? How did the preview start out? Yeah, right. A man was hung on the cross going down the river. Absolutely, Barb. This movie begins with sacrifice. This unknown missionary, we don't know who, I don't think we know who he is. I mean, the, people, the characters in the story know who he is, but I don't think he's actually referenced by name. But he is, uh, you couldn't tell, but in the movie you can tell he actually has a spear mark right here, or whatever side is in normal paintings. So he's on the cross, going down the river, going off the waterfall, and he actually goes into the earth right up. I mean, it, it, it's totally computer-generated. I mean, it's, it's like too perfect of a fall. It goes right into the water. And um, so you're working on these Christi- Christian images of baptism, death, uh, sacrifice, and then the question is resurrection. How is this man's sacrifice vindicated? Well, it's vindicated in Jeremy Irons' character who goes to the same spot knowing that death could lie in front of him, but he gladly, gladly goes. And he actually does convert this village. I mean, he builds a a church. And he's the one who said, if might is right, then there's no room for love in the world, I think is what he said. That's that's a very good point because what's going on on a political realm, there is zero love, no love. And there's no sacrifice going on. It's completely taking, just coming in, taking, and they're consumers. Where Jeremy Irons' side, including that initial, is completely motivated by love and demonstrated in sacrifice. And it's completely giving. And at the end of the movie, uh, the reason why the reason why the conquest isn't able to get to this village in the beginning of the movie is because Spain controls this land, which outlaws slavery. Well, there's a treaty among Spain and Portugal that moves the boundary, and now this mission is now in Portuguese territory, which. Uh, allows slavery. Well, um, so that's that's kind of what happens at the end. Now we have this scenario where the choice is given. You either move the mission up into Spanish territory, which the people said, uh, no. Why did God change his mind? So they, they're willing to stay and face the consequences. Well, Robert De Niro's character is the man caught in between. He was a slave trader, killed his brother, and then became a monk, a Jesuit monk, and was living the life of a, of a missionary. But then in the end, when, when this scenario comes about, 
He chose to defend the mission in his old ways. So he's a very tragic character. However, at the very end of the movie, he gets shot multiple times, and he's sitting on the ground, and he looks up, and then he sees his brother, Jeremy Irons, who has gathered the congregation outside the church and is actually holding the divine service. Save the last dance. That's okay. I, I, you know, I, I, I think my explanation is a lot longer. I should have just showed it to you. Um, but he gathers the congregation outside the church uh, building. So you see it, and he's holding the divine service. He has the altar. And the congregation begins to walk towards those who are coming into this village to conquest it. Well, the fighting's going on because Robert De Niro is using violence to fight off, and some of the people from this village are using the violence also. But Jeremy Irons is motivated by love and sacrifice and doesn't use violence. He's gathered the congregation and is actually walking towards, basically this is how, this is the two scenarios is, how are they fighting the war? And these two fronts of the war are coming together now. And what's going to happen? Well, Jeremy, Jeremy Island's character, Iron's character, is actually holding the monstrous, which is a Roman Catholic. He's basically holding the body of Christ. So he's marching into this war with the body of Christ and everything the body of Christ is. And you could tell there's kind of fear and trepidation on his face but he confidently walks into this moment. Sounds very similar to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows this is God's will, but it's going to require everything he has. Complete sacrifice. But he's not willing to give up on love. So he walks into this, and I mean, it's a tragic scenario. We all know who's watching this movie, what's going to happen. And he dies. I mean, he gets blown away. He falls and he drops the, the, the body of Christ, and what's a wonderful image is somebody comes by and picks it up and carries it on into the scenario. It was. Yeah, one of the people from the congregation pick up where he died. And it's a wonderful scene, but Robert De Niro, uh, you know, the tragic character who uses violence, is witnessing all this as he dies. And you can tell on his face there's one of regret and repentance. So... This is my own personal interpretation of Robert De Niro's character. In the end, he does repent and he sees the error of his ways. It is um, the, I think, St. Peter kind of effect in this scenario. But what what the church in this movie definitely uh, realizes is they received a sacrifice. They received love defined by sacrifice. And if they are to receive that love in its entirety, they are to live it. So they actually give the sacrifice. It's a very powerful movie. And it's something where it causes you to think quite a bit about how we approach life, relationships. And what is the Christian response. But that I'm beginning a tangent, so I'll just stop right there. All right, the next section is the ritual. And 
the ritual. The ritual, it, Peterson uh, speaks of ritual in, insofar as it, it, it changes everything. It, it, it gives a form to the life or the content of what, what's going on. So he actually goes, oh, I forgot. Well, you guys know the, the service well enough. Um, he actually goes through basically our uh, communion liturgy. talks about the preface. Uh, well, actually, he talks about the offering. What shall I offer to the Lord for all his benefits? Um, sacrifice of praise. And the cup of thanksgiving. It's interesting, those are old, that's the Old Testament scripture. But the church enacts it in the New Testament times. It's fascinating. Funny thing, too, though, about what shall I offer the Lord for all his benefits for me? Um, the punctuation in there is inserted. There's no punctuation in the Hebrew text. So you could actually translate it. I don't know if it... It, there's two ways of translating it. The one that we recite, which is perfectly and wonderfully correct. You could also say, what shall I offer the Lord? His benefits. You're actually offering his benefits. You're actually offering what he's given you. Which is, is pretty much the same way, but it, it's an answer to the question. It's not part of the question anymore. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. Okay, so he starts out with that, and then he goes through just basically the ritual of, of uh, the words of institution and then the actual distribution. But one of the things that I really think is interesting is the Bell of Abacan. My wife and I always think about this when we, whenever we, um, first of all, hear bells. But it changes everything. The Bell of Abakan. Abakan is, is a city in Siberia. It is in the Hakasia region. And Pavel Zayakin is the main pastor in Abakan. Anyways, while we were in Siberia a few years back, they don't have a church building in Abakan, so they're a storefront church. They're like your typical missionary Baptist church on the west side of Chicago, but it's a Lutheran version. So they kind of have to basically take whatever space they have and transform it into a sacred space. Well, we were actually at a a conference center at a hotel, and it was like the beginning of, of today. We were talking, drinking coffee, having a good time. Well, same scenario, but then the bell rings, and everybody stops whatever they're doing. I mean, literally stops. Not kind of, hey, I want to finish my sentence and then I'll get to it. They stop, they stand up, face towards the, the, the altar area, and they're ready. The ritual changed everything. And you're in the midst of it. I mean, Holly and I have no, I mean, we have no, we weren't fluent Russian speakers and so we don't know what's going on, but we definitely knew something changed by everybody around us. So their ritual actually witnessed to us. I mean, a witness that this is now a new time, a new space, things are different. And, which, and what Peterson actually is bringing out in the ritual is that that is the same for us. As we worship, 
the ritual now forms our life to testify to the fact that things are different. The presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper has come into our life and now things are completely different. The old way, the way of conquest is past and the way of love has entered in. Which is the whole idea of receiving versus manipulating. In 1 Corinthians 11, I, that's why I wanted to get my Bible out. I, he actually quotes it in the book, but 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is um, a very important reading on this idea of ritual. Obviously, it deals with the Lord's Supper, too. First Corinthians 11, chapter, I mean, uh, verse 30, uh, 23. We'll just start that, start there. But there, the whole section, I think, is kind of set off. It's called the Lord's Supper in my Bible. That's what it says. But listen to Paul's kind of understanding of, of, of what's, what's going on. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same while, so he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The first few words of that in verse 23 is the most important thing right now. For what I received from the Lord, I deliver to you. Paul is declaring a a servant attitude. I mean, this is servanthood. I receive, I give. I don't receive and then manipulate what I have and then give to you. Because if Paul actually did that, if he actually manipulated the gift he's given, anything he distributes after that is different and is not the gift that he's received. Does that make sense? If you manipulate, if you receive something and say, I'm going to make it better by doing this, that's a judgment call. I mean, you might have made it better. I don't know. But you definitely are not giving the gift that you've received. It is now different. Gigi. Right. Yeah, absolutely, actually. I mean, that's that's and the literal translation. Yeah, so, and it was like the, the Father hands over Christ. Right. And then, right, and then he referred us to this, where it says, what I've received from the Lord, I've also passed on to you. I think this is the one where in the same Absolutely, this is exactly it. Word yep. was used. It was that's right. Over, it was handed over. That is absolutely correct. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I've totally forgot about that. That was like earth shattering for me. Because I thought the handed over was like Judas handing over the Romans. 
Right. And actually, I mean, that's kind of most of church history is interpreted that way. However, uh, this is just, this is a little tangent on that whole thing. We, yeah, there's a difference between translation and interpretation. And is this a translation or is this an interpretation? Well, Judas the betrayer, maybe perhaps was Judas the ignorant. Well, I mean, there's this thing here is that I think we've we've uh, judged Judas insofar as I mean, he was he was damned before he did anything, and Jesus, you know, says. You know, it would have been better for this man not to be born. Which we can take for, as malicious and anger. Or we can say, we can actually just hear Jesus' words with great sincerity and say, this man is, is going to suffer and it would have been better for him not to be born. I just, yeah, I don't, I don't think betray is the only way to, to interpret that whole scenario. And if you, and if you don't if you if you don't interpret it that way, it makes it actually ten times more tragic. Judas is ten times more the tragic character than we think, and that would to a certain extent explain his reaction afterwards. Working in ignorance, if he didn't know what he was doing, it would to a certain extent make sense his reaction. But if he entered into this scenario knowing he was going to give up Jesus, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science to know that if he gave up Jesus, bad things was going to happen to Jesus. So maybe he wasn't working maliciously but ignorantly. Anywho, that's a tangent. Just raise questions, no answers. So, okay. Uh, Peterson, let's turn to Mark chapter 8, too, if we can. I th- I'm pretty sure it was Mark 8. I, we're not going to read the whole thing because it's, it's a long section. But the painting I have up here is a, maybe not your most, quote-unquote, pretty picture. Yeah, turn to Mark chapter 6, not Mark 8, sorry. Mark 8's the feeding of the 4,000. But the feeding of the 5,000 is in Mark chapter 6. What happens just before the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6? He loses his head. Now, in the Gospels, John the Baptist and Jesus are, are closely linked. Aside from Jesus, John the Baptist is really the one who moves the story. We often don't think about that, though, because, um, you know, it's kind of in the beginning, and then he kind of falls out, and then he kind of comes back a little bit with his disciples, and then we have the beheading. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, this is the, uh, most kind of the information we get about the beheading of John the Baptist is from Mark chapter 6. These, this is uh, it's different in the other Gospels. But what Mark does here is a fascinating thing. He sets up a compare and contrast as a listener. 
John the Baptist, where is he beheaded? In what context is what's happening? Well, it's a feast. Herod's birthday party. Great feast happening. Food. Tables. And when you have feasts, there's supposed to be joy and celebration. At this feast, there's, there's actually no joy, just grudges and regret. Now that's compared in contrast to the Feast of the Feeding of the 5,000, which is defined by compassion and joy and overabundance. In a sense, what the Mark, Mark does is he, he sets up a Feast of Death versus a Feast, feast of Life. And, um, and they're completely connected. Because what's, what's served up at the feast, uh, according to this picture, you have a platter, right? Which is, uh, which is a, a, a uh, uh, it's a uh, culinary term. Yeah, you use a platter to serve things. And the reason why Mark used that is to, to, to it's a literary device, where he actually says, uh, serves up death. And Jesus, though, serves up life. Because in the feeding of the 5,000, everyone is filled until satisfied. Fulfilled, actually, is another way it, you could say. Full. Cups overflow. The cup overflows. It's the same word in Greek. So, anyways, what's funny about this picture, though, is uh, Caravaggio, this is Caravaggio's head. He's the painter. This is his head. Kind of interesting. So he puts himself into this, this scenario as a sacrifice. He's being unjustly persecuted, which may be true or may not be true. If you know anything about Caravaggio, he was an angry man and he did a lot of violence. But he thinks he's unjustly persecuted. What's interesting, too, about this is this goes to what I was talking about before. When you're motivated by uh, conquest, manipulation, you're animal-like, like in the mission, like that character the politician. This character right here is the girl who danced for Herod. Well, that's up to interpretation, yes. But who's who's this? Yeah. Do they have one body or two bodies? Yeah, it looks like a two-headed monster. So anyways, it's, it's kind of an interesting, fun little picture. But the reason why I, I brought this up is because, A, he brought up the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospel of Mark, but he didn't mention John the Baptist. But the idea that of, of feeding and sacrifice are completely connected, and it's following in the Old Testament way of, uh, well, uh, let, me not, let me not jump ahead. But uh, let's turn to 209, actually, in the book. Oh, okay, great. It's the, let's see here, the third full paragraph down. And so when the Eucharist is enacted in our common worship, 
we understand that this same Jesus, the Jesus who is the word of creation, incarnation and redemption, who offered himself up a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, includes us in the offering, our bodies presented as a living sacrifice, our flesh and blood saved by his flesh and blood, that the bread which we break may be the communion of the body of Christ and the cup of blessing which we bless, the communion of the blood of Christ. That is a quote from, I believe, if it's not from 1 Corinthians, it must be from a church father, but that actually echoes 1 Corinthians. Okay, anyways, that's why I didn't write the whole thing, because it was a very long sentence. But the whole, uh, the, the, what Peterson demonstrates, though, is what's going on here, is that the John the Baptist, his sacrifice is caught up into the sac- sacrifice of Christ. This is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the end of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus does offer up his body as a, as a sacrifice. And John the Baptist is following in what has happened actually all through the Old Testament. Uh, not only are the prophets killed in Jerusalem, but redemption is carried out in a sacrifice in the temple. And how now we're getting the insight that it's moving from the temple, from lambs, to Jesus as the temple, and Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that whole ritual, though, defines now our life. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah, maybe. I haven't read the finish. I haven't finished the book yet, so. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. I put a star. Yeah, go ahead and read what you were going to read, though. Yeah, okay, let, let, I'll, I'll save it for you because I was, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat reading this, and I'm thinking, oh, he's got to, because he, he kind of builds this up, the idea of offerings and taking what we get giving, and he kind of leaves it as whatever we give, and he's working in spite of our lack of giving, but... At the end, it says Jesus takes it, takes us. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. 
Right. Well, Beth, you, uh, uh, Donna, um, <laughs> you, uh, you, 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 this is a great quote because it, it, it's, it's still, it, I mean, this idea of he doesn't, he doesn't extort, he doesn't coerce. That's the way of God. That is the way of love. Um, just going back to, back, back to that mission, the mission movie. I mean, it's echoing. All these things are being echoed because, um, if God didn't work that way, he would be, I mean, think about God as an ex- extorter, extortion and, and coercer. And the things he gives us will then be completely um, filled or at least uh, guilt and shame will be attached to the things he gives us. Because extortion, how does extortion work? I mean, there was the woman who just committed suicide about... She was the Washington, D.C. madam, and I'm sure there was a lot of extortion going on in her business. But uh, extortion. I'm going to give you this opportunity to uh, stay out of trouble by giving me a, a, a monthly allowance of $10,000, or I will go to the authorities and tell on you. So you live your life in fear. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> see, that's the thing. Like, we, we can freely give what we have. Actually, and Peterson's point is we freely give us. What we have is an extension of who we are. So that's the thing. Like, it, 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 uh, the amount is beside the point. That's, it's Jesus' whole, whole scenario in, the, in the, the temple and the widow's might. That's beside the point. The amount is beside the point because if you don't give an, as an extension of who you are, then what are you giving? So, for instance, the widow's might. She gave everything. So she gave herself. Those who only give a little bit of themselves, uh, that they're not giving themselves. I mean, that's the thing. You know, we, we here at St. John, we talk about tithing and 10%. The New Testament number is actually 100%. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we, we'll, we'll start at 10%. That'll be good. Yes, Donna. Oh, yeah, right. You're right. He transforms it. Yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, we could have spent the entire time today on, on Mark chapter six because there's so many avenues. Because the disciples really demonstrate how. Because um, Jesus says, "Why don't you give them something to eat?" And, he, and, she, and they're like, 
the language is a sarcastic, they're either mocking Jesus, being sarcastic with Jesus, or angry with Jesus. Which is contrasted to the Gospel of Luke, which is kind of interesting. The Gospel of Luke, the language is much more toned down, and they're like, they're just basically questioning, well, how, you know, can you show us how to do that? The Gospel of Mark, it's not like that. They're like, you're crazy. There is no way we can do this. All we have is this stuff. and there's, You can't do anything with that. I mean, basically, they're telling God what to do. So they're entering into this relationship with God as manipulators and coercers and extorters. But God works in spite of that, which is Peterson's point. And actually then, when he blesses it, he transforms it. He takes what you have and takes it up into his work, gets caught up in the work of God, and actually then uses it for salvation. So when you think, oh, lowly me, oh, woe is me, I'm just some poor individual. You don't make decisions for God. And when you say that, you actually are making a decision for God. And God says, well, actually, I'm going to use you for, for, for someone else's salvation. So, you know, buckle up and get ready for the ride. Well, exactly. Yeah, but he, yeah, he doesn't have to do that, but that's just the way he does things. He, he, he fills you up more than you can take. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of kind of like when we talk about the small catechism, I mean, Confirmation Sunday, this Sunday, 1.30, for anybody who wants to come. That's the beginning. I mean, they, they've received their little bit, but they still have the 12 baskets to, to enjoy for the rest of their lives. So confirmation is never the end. It's always, it's always the, it's just, they've just ate the meal and they still have all this other stuff still to enjoy. Jesus will fill them up, but there's still a lot more to keep going. There's 12 baskets. It's the, and it, I mean, but and that's the thing. And, and so this actually relates to this, this next point, this next slide here, hospitality. If you have 12 baskets left, you, you got a lot to share. I mean, you're not, you can have people over at your house to share. You got 12 baskets, which is a, uh, a symbolic number of plenty. You have enough to share. So when Jesus says, do this, and remember to me, sometimes we just think strictly within the ritual and the divine service. That also is there, but it's also the rest of it. See, he wants to participate, but just don't have, doesn't have the words yet to participate. Soon. Um, that's the thing. So do this, not only the ritual, not only the Lord's Supper and worship, but the whole kit and caboodle. And uh, there's a great movie. Some might find it boring. But it's another movie preview. It's The Man Without a Past. It's a Finnish movie, so I'm a little nervous. I don't know if you'll be able to see the subtitles. 2002, I believe, or 2003, The Man Without a Pass. It is a slow-moving movie. But this movie is uh, knit together through meals and hospitality. The scenario of the movie is this man's heading to Helsinki, to, for work, you think he's mugged as he get off the tra- as he gets off the train, 
mug, beaten to a pulp. The scene goes to the hospital. He's wrapped all in white, which is way too, I mean, he, it's, he looks like a mummy, which, you know, is not, tr- I mean, he doesn't need to be like that. And uh, it lo- he looks like he's dead, and all of a sudden he pops up, unwraps himself, and then goes on and lives this new life. He has, no, he has no memory of his old life. So this new life is defined by hospitality. He's a poor man. He lives like in a, in a train car thing. Yeah, like a stockyard. And um, one of the first scenes in his new life is he has two, two neighbors over, and they cook whatever they have. And what's funny is the scene, they sit down at the table, and for a split moment, the, action, the movement stops. And the actual uh, picture of it is the icon of the Trinity. It's the three, three angels, and, and they actually just stop for a moment, and they all look, and then it keeps moving. It's, I mean, it's like less than a second stop, but you can tell because they're moving, and then it's like that. It's like... So, uh, very fascinating movie. Finnish, Luth- you know, Lutheranism's big in Finland, so that's why I kind of talk about it. We'll see, we'll see what we can do with this. Uh, all right. The one, the one meal was in there that I wanted you guys to see is related to Beth, what she actually said. Adana... Um, was how uh, he was cooking. He was cooking a meal for this woman he met, who's Salvation Army, and the Salvation Army is all about these meals, welcoming whoever comes, giving this meal, and he he finds a love interest, and he cooks a meal for her, he uses everything he has, <laughs> but as you could tell, he, she asks, "Can I help out with that?" And he said, "Well, it's, it's already ruined." But from her perspective, love, love transforms the, the meal for a feast. And it goes, that's, that's what you're saying. Is that our Lord takes what we have and transforms it into a feast of love, delight, and joy. So the movie's great. Uh, slow moving. I mean, very dry humor. If you saw that, I, you, you probably could tell. Well, the acting's intentional. It's bad acting, but it's intentional. Okay? You just have to watch the trailers. I get to watch the whole thing. <laughs> I think about this movie often, though. It's, it's a, the, the movie's interesting, too, because when he finds out about his old life, he says, man, I, I don't, that doesn't sound very good. Why would I want to go back to that? Which is, that's the Christian life right there. We ask ourselves, why in the world do we want to go back to the old way we lived? Um, so anyway, it's a little tidbit of, you know, I'm trying to broaden everyone's movie-going life. But giving the gift, do this, giving the gift, meals and sacrifices. I mean, this all begins in Genesis 8. I mean, this actually begins in Genesis, uh, the covenant with Abraham. You could actually even say that probably starts in Genesis 3 with the, 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 the skins that God gives Adam and Eve. And goes all the way through, even to the New Testament. The Gospel of Luke especially is knit together through table fellowship. 
You can't go through the Gospels and not have meals. There is meals all over the place, which we normally just interpret as it's got, they got to do it somewhere, so it's, they take it as just kind of a setting. But if we do interpret the Gospels as a drama, we realize that everything on stage means something. There's no inconsequential point. Everything is speaking towards the message. Everything is taken up into this story. Everything. Sometimes we don't, I think sometimes we forget how radical this all is. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I just, they, they talked a little bit about the reasoning behind that. And it, with, lately, I've, we've talked about this here at church. Sure. About, you know, how important meals are. And I just was wondering what, what's, the, what's going on there. I mean, I, I, they yeah. explore sort of the, um, the gluttony aspect of it or the... Right, this, 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 yeah, this deals with... Yeah, exactly. This deals with uh, John the Baptist, and uh, and we'll stop here and pray and go. But uh, this deals with John the Baptist versus the feeding of the 5,000. What kind of meal is going on at the White House? I mean, this is, this is these are people who should be feeding others, not being fed. So, I mean, it is, a, it is just, a, a, I, I mean, I'm reading into all this, but, right, but the... the Yeah, but what is this as like you know this this is food on this plane and then there's food on this plane and this is the food you need. Right, if you take a look though at all the meals that he does, like for instance, uh the Pharisee in Luke seven, who shows up? The women. Yeah. Will the women show up at the White House? No. Um Zacchaeus. I mean, if the Pope met with, I mean, yeah, with a, a great sinner who's converted, even though that sinner is rich like Zacchaeus, that's, that's, a, that's a whole different level. Anyways, yeah, he talks about business. I mean, this is, this is not, yeah, we're here to do, to do work. So maybe he didn't see that as work. All right, well, unfortunately, we didn't get to uh, what kind of gift it is, but let me put it this way. I don't think you actually receive the gift that God gives you until you are actually giving it away. You don't receive the gift that God gives you until you're giving it away. Because I think God actually gives you the gift of giving. And if you are to receive giving in its entirety, you actually are giving which is related to sacrifice. So there's actually action in the gift itself. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay.
Sure. Right. No, I, I, I understand. I understand. That right there, I would have just thought you said. I, um, yeah. That sort of stuck in my head as he changed his life and his blood and started Yeah, uh, Somebody asked me that. Well, this is a, yeah. I mean, this is a whole other. We could. We should probably talk about this next time you come. <laughs> <laughs>